0: Welcome to What is California, a podcast featuring conversations with notable Californians in a quest to understand the Golden State. I'm your host, Stu Van Aersdale. On this episode, episode 27, we are going to get wonky about water with Felicia Marcus. Felicia is the William Landreth Fellow at the Water in the West Institute at Stanford University, as well as a founding member of the Water Policy Group which is a consortium of international thinkers about water, water usage, water preservation, and all other things water. Felicia's resume goes back quite a ways. She most recently was the chair of the California State Water Resources Control Board, but going back way further, she was president of the Board of Public Works for the city of LA back in the day. She was the uh, regional administrator for the epa's pacific southwest region during the clinton administration and also was a founder and general counsel to the organization heal the bay which she talks about in this episode uh it had a funny name to start it was not as catchy as heal the bay she'll tell you all about that and how that all got started but you know her journey through the kind of water bureaucracy kind of showcases the ways that California has thought about water over the last 30, 40 years in particular. And it gets us a little closer to understanding what needs to be done to think about water and uh, sustainable water usage in the decades to come with climate change, drought, and other conditions worsening in California, we have to take some serious actions. And this, as recently as this week, we saw some pretty drastic cutbacks uh, in Southern California. Millions of customers are being urged to reduce water in unprecedented ways. So that is just the start of some of the changes we're gonna see in California around water usage. And Felicia has some really interesting ideas that she has kind of nurtured and developed and collaborated with others on over the last few decades about how that water sustainability might be achieved and how we, as water consumers, lay people, kind of using this stuff every day, just obviously drinking water, using it in our gardens, using it in our homes, uh, the ag industry, you name it, can find a way forward together to make sure we have plenty of the resource to go around not to mention we got to keep it in the streams too got to keep it in the rivers those fish need water uh, the fishing industry needs the fish uh, is desalination a thing we talk about that there's a lot we cover a lot of ground and i'm really excited to share the conversation with you Remember, you can get a hold of me anytime at hello at what is California. If you have guest recommendations, comments, thoughts, questions, anything at all, I'd love to hear from you as always. And so, yeah, now without further ado, here is me with Felicia Marcus on What Is California. Let's talk about water. Enjoy. Felicia Marcus, welcome to What Is California. It's so great to have you here. I look forward to talking about your work regarding water in California. But let's get started with your background. What's your California story? Are you from here originally? And if not, how and when did you arrive here?
1: I am. I'm an L.A. girl, born in West Hollywood and grew up in the San Fernando Valley. I I fled after high school for about 10 years. I even went internationally for a while into various places on the East Coast. But once um, I, I got back, I've loved it ever since. I mean, there's a big difference being an adult in California and in L.A. in particular, and being a high school student at a giant high school in the Valley.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what part of California is home for you now?
1: Uh, L.A. I'll always be an Angeleno. And that's my community, even though I've lived in the Bay Area since 1993, when I came up here for the U.S. EPA job during the Clinton administration. I still identify as an Angeleno, and that's the community I'm a part of. I've always had sort of a national or a state job, While I've been up here.
0: What does that exactly mean? I mean, as an Angelino, because I know some people are very, very, you know, territorial. Some people are very proud of that. Some people are very, you know, avowedly Angelinos. What does that mean for you?
1: It means an identification with a dynamic city in transition and always in transition. And so hence the dynamism, but also a much more open and less class based culture than a lot of other places. Certainly the East Coast or up here. Uh, L.A. is largely made of people who've come from other places seeking a dream of some point and uh, has a culture of welcoming new people in the public policy arena in particular. I mean, it, the way I describe it is, uh, you know, it's everything from the food scene. If you follow Jonathan Gold when he was at the L.A. Times before his untimely death, um, and, and it, it's just it's a very energized kind of a place with a lot of variety and where you can be whoever you want to be but you need to have some tolerance for other people being who they want to be and you've got the mountains and the ocean right there and accessible and kind of warm enough to go into sometimes and it's where i was able to make a difference you know in a community so that kind of sticks with you it's it's the way i describe it to people is the and it's not to disparage an entire industry but the, the the wannabes or the status seekers tend to go to hollywood Mm-hmm. Which kind of leaves civic infrastructure, city hall dealing with those issues to a small, a relatively smaller group of people who really care about civic issues. And so we rebuilt in the 80's uh, 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 the environmental community, but we also built it with a collective of people where if people in government or the corporate sector wanted to join us, they could. You know and, and a new person came to town, we'd have a party and introduce them to everybody mm-hmm. as opposed to mm-hmm. other places where you have to be there for a long time before you can be taken seriously. So I'm still a part of the civic infrastructure, even though I haven't lived there in a long time, because can't really afford to lose anybody. It's just it's a very collegial atmosphere, even though people have disagreements. Of course they do, but it's different than anywhere else I've been.
0: What's your earliest memory of California and why do you think that memory is stuck with you?
1: Oh, you know, I don't know. I think for me, I mean, it's everything since I grew up here, but I think it's the quality of the light, how bright it is more often in the time. Um, the blue of the sky is nicer than in other places. I don't know how to describe it. it, it there's something about the quality of the lights out there, the fact that there are mountains running right through the middle of the, the city so you can get into nature easier than people think of when they come to visit L.A. and the beach. It's just sort of, you know, stunning as a child chasing after sand crabs and all that long story I won't get into. But when I moved to the valley to move with my aunt and uncle as a kid, we moved into the hills. And so I was out climbing through the hills, the mesquite and the oak trees and all of that a a lot in my childhood, you know, playing with garter snakes and lizards and all that sort of um, stuff, which was great. And then I, I went to summer camp in Southern California from about 12, so not as early as a lot of people. And I, I was one of those people who I became a you know a counselor in training, a CIT leader, you know junior counselor, and then I trained CIT. So my camp experience, it probably gave me more exposure to nature than a lot of other people in LA, depending on where they uh, lived. I went to the same summer camp as Andy Lipkis, who founded Tree People. I think he was a year ahead of me in school. And mm-hmm. I think we were both really influenced by that that summer camp experience to go into the environmental movement eventually. So I do associate uh, LA more with nature probably than uh, the average bear.
0: That's really interesting, yeah. Who are mm-hmm. some other Californians you've either met or worked with who have influenced you over the years or impacted you and who you are?
1: There's so many. I, I mean, I've had the good fortune of being able, not just to meet, but to work with some pretty remarkable people who who influenced me by their example, but also influenced me by their influence. So uh, not to say they took me under their wing, but a lot of them did. And so I had the, the good fortune of having a lot of people who could see what I could do before I could see that I could do it, which is, you know, a gift beyond measure um, to many people never get it. And I, I feel like I've had more than my share. I mean, it, it can range from, you know, Judge Harry Pragerson, who was a judge I clerked for, who was great to clerk for him. He taught me how to write and he was you know, really good mentor. But more than that, he was just an amazing role model of a very proud Californian. I mean, I maybe that's why I th- thought of him first, just because he would always bring up being a Californian and an Angelino and growing up in Boyle Heights and um, in a very multicultural neighborhood and having a very... Multicultural life and all that was great about L.A., except for the Dodgers. He wasn't that into sports, which I always, I, th- I always found funny. But he liked mm-hmm. everything else about um, L.A. And he was just a guy who believed in doing good and helping people. I mean, he, and and he made that point that life is short and it's about helping other people, and that's how you lead a really full life and how you're engaged. He's always very supportive of all of my civic engagement work, which came after I clerked for him. He really encouraged us to talk to each other in a way that it has totally influenced the way I work. And also, you know, had several epiphanies about the fact that you really need to talk to people and not just characterize them by their position. Other people, Frank Grant, who was from the both Hoopa and Yurok reservations, who was an engineer in LA, who was the guy who said to the city folks, you know, why don't we just talk to them about what our issues are as opposed to just hiding from them? I mean, all these people that encourage talking to people, Kathleen Brown, who, Mm -hmm. um, you know, would have been a great governor as well, had that worked out, but who uh, helped talk me into going to public works uh, and who was just a, a remarkable person. Mary Nichols, who's one of my best friends, but who was originally a, a mentor and advisor who, who gave me the go for it. There's just a lot of folks who I think are also integral to the history of California that I've had the rare privilege of knowing and who've mentored me in one way or another. Sorry, long answer, but I've been really lucky there.
0: What's your favorite California place?
1: You know, there are a lot of them. I mean, I think it, it seems hard to not say Yosemite, because it's such an amazing place in so many ways. I mean, not just Half Dome or El Capitan, but just sitting and listening to the, you know, the Merced River going by and looking at the cobbles and you know, knowing where it's going or uh, it just there's't can't, I can't ever tire of I can get tired of driving to Yosemite, but I never tire of being in, in Yosemite and the, the smells. I think after that, the eastern Sierras, that wall of the Sierras when you're on the other side, that it, whether in Bishop or down by Manzanar, is just breathtaking. Um, but I'll take any, my favorite landscape is the rolling brown or green hills dotted with oak trees. There's, you know, it's my childhood drive into the Santa Monica Mountains um, to camp uh, will always be that. And the smell of trees and mountains, oddly enough, are really the landscapes I like the most, even though most of my career is focused on water and cleaning up the ocean or the bay, I can relax in the, in the mountains and with those rolling hills uh, more than I can at the ocean, which is fantastic, of course, but not as peaceful for me as I think about what's in it. You know, it's, it's work, so it's a little different.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about your career. You have a few titles and roles. Can you bring us up to speed on uh, where you're working these days?
1: Well, it, it, I've been doing a number of things over the course of the last few years after leaving the State Water Resources Control Board, a lot internationally in a pro bono sense in um, primarily climate adaptation and water, but also other water policy issues With in part with this group, the Water Policy Group, which is a group of 10 of us from six continents who have been high-level national or international water um, officials. And uh, I love that work. I, I do spend a lot of time on it. Just it's really fantastic. Um, and the uh, uh, Association for Global Water Adaptation, International Water Association. But more recently, I'm in a halftime fellowship at Stanford's Water in the West program, where I'm working on a number of issues, including the synergies between uh, state climate policy and nature-based solutions that yield multiple benefits for water, because we need to have a more holistic approach if we're gonna meet the challenge of climate change and also create a livable world versus the strange siloed, balkanized ones we've sort of built through our over-professionalization, but also issues on underutilized tools to protect in-stream flows and rights of rivers, a lot of really cool stuff, but also just interacting with students, also teaching a, an energy seminar. And then I'm also, I've been doing a variety of consulting things, largely in the water recycling and urban water world. And uh, most recently, I went on the board of the Western Electricity Coordinating Council, which oversees the bulk electricity transmission grid for the Western U.S. and parts of Canada and Mexico. So I'm sort of going back from all water to the more eclectic background that I uh, came in with. So it's very exciting and really very fun. And it's fun to be working with students and thinkers and policymakers in other fields as well.
0: How and when did you get into California water policy in particular? And I guess how has water policy and policy making changed here since you since you started?
1: Well, that's an interesting an interesting secondary question. I mean, sewage was my entry drug, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, I've worked on <laughs> offshore oil drilling and the I don't late... think Anyone's
0: ever said that sentence before? Sewage was my entry drug.
1: It was. My it gateway totally drug. Was. Well, if you think about, you know, back in the in the mid 80s, you know, I got when I was just a fellow at the Center for Law and the Public Interest and a guy for Larry Lacombe from Sierra Club came in and he said, you know, we've created this group of groups, the Coalition to Stop Dumping Sewage into the Ocean, which is a very descriptive name, but hardly poetic. Yeah. And I never <laughs> took a client without. Meeting them and seeing, you know, were they the kind of people who are going to be effective advocates and let me influence them or do they just want to yell at the decision maker, which is just Mm -hmm. a dumb idea. Like nobody pays Mm -hmm. lobbyists hundreds of dollars an hour to insult the decision maker, but somehow activists feel like that's okay. Yeah. And and that just never made sense to me because I'm I'm kind of the practitioner pragmatist mechanic. How do we get to the Mm -hmm. result person Mm -hmm. versus the. I don't I, you know I can give a speech but I'm not talking about getting misty eyed about Gaia and compost and and that's all important too but you need mm-hmm. your lawyer to be the one to help you be how do we actually get something done with the people that are in this uh, ecosystem uh, human ecosystem that we're we're dealing with and I went down there and you know the rest was history but then I became their general counsel one of the founders of what became Heal the Bay a much better name than the coalition to stop dumping sewage into the ocean if a little you know i it's was a lawyer better, and i yeah. wanted save the bay as a traditionalist but the heel of the bay people were completely right about what would move <laughs> people and i learned a lot from them from the more creative folks and then you know the rest was history i mean it took years but we won some big decisions but we really turned the whole city around uh, in a way that the with our, our other colleagues in the environmental community in a way that's really held. And so then, of course, I went to EPA and I had to do Bay Delta. So all of a sudden I was in the Bay Delta, you know, water fish conflicts, uh, water user, water user conflicts, and helped negotiate the Bay Delta Accord of the 90s. And so that got me then into the more water supply side ag issues, et cetera, not just quality. And so it just kind of snowballed from there. I tried to flee the water world for about seven years after the Clinton administration because I was just so tired because it is a tough arena at the statewide level to get folks to listen to each other, talk to each other. It's kind of a strange situation where people keep repeating their talking points past each other across the decades. So I went into land conservation for about seven years where people knew how to make a deal with people they didn't automatically know or agree with to begin with. It was very therapeutic.
0: You know, you, you just mentioned how the coalitions have held, and I'm, I'm curious what has changed about policymaking around water In California, over the years, Uh, you know, what have you observed?
1: Well, a lot. There's a lot that's different. I mean, and it's different if you're talking at a local level or you're talking at the statewide level. You know, to me, a lot of times it depends on how much sleep I've had the night before. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because I can give you. I I tend to be more a glass half full person. I think it's a better way to live, but I have my days where it's bone dry. Um. But uh. So it's it's hard to say. I mean, on the one hand, I think we've made Great progress, always slower than we wanted. I mean, this is the value of being as old as I am. And so I've actually had enough time to see things happen um, that were agonizingly slow. But in the urban arena, we've got a real appreciation for water recycling, finally, and for stormwater capture. So if you look at the L.A. area, for example, I mean, there's some great examples in Orange County and San Diego, too. You've got work on going big on water recycling on speed. I mean, so much so that people are fighting over who has to leave water back in the LA River, which is a problem that 30 years ago I said I'd be happy to have because it meant that we had succeeded in water recycling. So now that we're having that problem, I'm happy to have it, right? Because I said I would be. So there's always Mm -hmm. something, right? But you've got this urban adaptation and conservation uh, and all of that going finally at the scale that we should have been at a while ago, which gives them a fighting chance to be prepared for the curveballs that climate change is going to throw at us on the other issues at a statewide level it's mixed right so i think one of the things that was great about governor brown was that he's always the guy who sees 30 years into the future right so he you know he's the progenitor with the people he appointed obviously of the energy efficiency miracle that is california that's amazing over the past 30 40 years he came in and saw what climate change was going to do to our water system because our largest storage in a system that needs storage for modern California to exist was our snowpack. And that's what we lose with even a few degrees temperature rise. And it's certainly what we saw even more deeply in the current drought than we even saw in the big one that I was um, in the middle of uh, when I was at the state board. But we know we're going to lose that snowpack and we're going to be in a world of hurt that make all these fights that people have been having over water for the past 30 years seem like a picnic. And he said we got to do something about it. So we did this California Water Action Plan that had sort of 10 bullets. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't perfectly written, but it was, we're gonna do these 10 things. So the action was the part. Come with me if you want to live. You know, it was you guys can keep being a debating society. We're gonna be in action on these things. So come with us or not, but we're not just gonna sit on our butts. And it led to a different discourse. It was a change the political discourse of everybody saying it's this one thing, and why don't those in idiots do this one thing that would solve all the problems? It was like, forget that. We got to do all of this. We can't just do one. That won't get us there. So we can't conserve, recycle, and stormwater capture our way to sustainability, but we can't build dams and conveyances to get to sustainability. We have to figure out a mix of things. And the most important piece of that, and this is good news, even though it's, it's always going to take a while, is we got the first ever groundwater management framework passed in California, the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, which is designed to be able to manage water when it's there and get it underground, which is the only thing that can compensate in size for the snowpack we're gonna lose. And so he took that big step and took the political heat and we did the work to get it passed, and now it's in implementation. Is it imperfect? Sure. But people are in action at the local level around the the Central Valley in particular, which was less organized and managed than urban Southern California or Santa Clara Valley or other areas. Um, And they're trying to figure it out amongst themselves, both how to limit their withdrawals, which had been outstripping the, what nature could provide by two million acre feet a year, and they're experimenting with um, how to get more in faster, and how to transition some land t- from farming to recharge, from farming to ecological value that has recharge potential. It's like there's this incredible energy let loose, and that was a, to me, that was a big step.
0: Can you give us a quick overview of the principal water challenges facing California at the moment?
1: I mean, I think part of it is that the the freight train of pain that's climate change that we saw off into the future is clearly hitting earlier than many hoped. There were scientists who predicted this was all in the range of it happening this soon. Wasn't in the middle of the range, but scientists for decades have been saying this could happen now. It's just we were Mm -hmm. hoping more for a a couple more uh, decades. And so it's hitting now. And as I said, it makes all of our challenges we're, so we're, we're going to have the challenge of more frequent droughts and drier droughts because as it, again, temperature is something people don't appreciate. As it gets hotter, you end up with less of the precipitation we do get makes it to the ground, it evaporates, or it soaks into the ground and it, or it gets into the foliage Foliage that's there. And we end up with even less runoff than we used to have for the same amount of precipitation. And that happened just a couple of years years ago. So everything's going to be a lot harder on the dry side. And we got to get real about that. We're also going to have more intense flooding because the temperature increase also means that the atmosphere holds whatever it is for each each degree, 7% more. And when it gets heavy enough, it dumps and we get these atmospheres. So we have to plan for droughts and floods at the same time. And we're going to have to plan. For a more, and this isn't unique to California, but it, it is endemic for California. If that's that's not really the right word because we already have the most variable hydrology in the country. It's just going to get even worse. The good news is we're going to get the water. Some places like South Africa and other parts of the world are just getting drier. We at least have a shot at capturing it when it falls, largely to get it underground, right? And the, Because that's, that's the only thing that's big enough. And again, it doesn't evaporate once it's in there. But the way to do it isn't building bigger dams. The way to do it is to incorporate more nature-based solutions where you're taking out levees and spreading things across a floodplain, where you're diffusing the force of the flood for flood control. You're also getting things to soak into the groundwater base, and you're providing some ecological benefit at a time where we've almost lost everything that made California great from a ecosystem heritage. I think we need more Plan B plans for what's the next sigma what's the next big lift and i think a lot of it in the urban context will be about turf and leaks and recycling and i think in agriculture it's helping helping farmers transition and there's a bit of money in the in the budget to help folks transition to something else that uses less water i mean navigating through that is going to be important but the the place where we really are lacking is being able to to meet our our natural system goals of also leaving more water in stream so that rivers can do what rivers do um and that one keeps being elusive despite punctuated moments of progress
0: i was reading an article today in fact when i went out in the what is california newsletter about um you know the uh, there's these projects around the state that are actually restoring river um, ecosystems, just like taking notching levees, removing levees entirely to kind of restore these floodplains, and I thought that was really inspiring.
1: No, it's great. Like the River Partners work and some of the work with the rice rice farmers and fish. There's there's a lot of promising things. that are having a lot of the Yuba Forest Restoration Partnership. Awesome, just awesome. Involves tribes. It's like really great promising. We just have to do more of it faster. And we've got to get over this not being willing to put more wa- leave more water in stream.
0: So when we talk about agricultural water usage, we talk about residential water usage, we talk about water rights. Um, I mean, these are very controversial, hot topics, but like how much resonance or relevance do they actually have in the bigger picture of water usage and water limitations in California?
1: Well, they all do. I mean, I think the uh, urban conservation and recycling and stormwater, I think there's a real path to making most urban areas more self-sustaining. And the reason we did conservation regs was not to give it to ag or anybody else, but to make the storage that people had above and below ground last longer in our major cities where you can't bring in hauled water and just drill another well or what it like we do, and we need to do even more of in small rural communities who are the ones who feel the brunt of it. I think there was a bit of denial where folks felt they had planned for a three year drought and they were fine. It's like, dude, we could have a 10 or a 40 year drought, so that's not good enough. And so we had to kind of amp it up. In agriculture, it's a much harsher thing where, you know, water rights are 100% to the guy who's more senior, somebody else. It's a, a relic of the 19th century mining where they just saw water as yet another input to production. You know, again, different sensibilities, and it was a mining thing. You know, finders keepers kind of thing, first in time, first in right, and um, you know, whole communities and things. And cheap food has grown up around it, so you you don't just toss it out. But it's a very complex system and very hard to deal with. But frankly, you know, in this drought, you know, we've already had four hundred thousand uh, acres fallowed. That means people out of work. It means a lot of things. And we've got we had five hundred thousand in the last drought. We'll probably have a lot more before this drought. Is over, Um, so ag has some harsh realities uh, to deal with. But at the same time, we do have to redirect a little more of that water back into the environment, so it won't lose all our salmon and our smelt and our ecosystems, which people and places and critters also rely on. Whether it's commercial fishermen or orcas who eat those, I mean, it's we're all connected in some ways. But it is a little bit harder in the ag. Uh, context, because you also have this very fierce devotion to growing food and fiber. I mean, there are some people who are, just see it as dollar signs, but it's a mistake to write all of ag off that way. It's a lot of really hardworking people who do it as a labor of love in a really, really risky business. So,
0: Right. And you just mentioned first in time, first and right, and this kind of 19th century model. Like, how much do California's current water woes owe to bad or outdated or obsolete policy And I guess how much do they just owe to drought and low supply?
1: I'd say, I'm going to say 50-50 off the cuff because it it might even be 80%. I mean, we just are. We get dry. There's not as much water. And, you know, people want it for whatever they want it for. But I think we have a problem of having the most fragmented, um, poorly quantified, and terrible tools for managing water in California than any of the Western states, which people don't realize. We may be front of the line on water quality, and we've got some good tools like public trust and waste and reasonable use that we can use to kind of, in theory, help the environment And we have in some small ways. But the fact that we have such a fragmented system and we don't have good documentation and quantification and, uh, or adjudication, uh, which all of the other Western states have, mean that it's there's such a mess that people, it's very hard to have a coherent policy conversation. And we certainly don't have all the levers we need to help people come into the 21st century. I mean, other than on groundwater management, where sigma is a really good, I think, approach and is going to lead to... Um, Uh, more of a contraction of ag. It's still going to be huge, but living more within its means, means we'll have a more, hopefully a more sustainable future for ag in the long run in California.
0: Yeah. Is, Is low supply then, is this drought, this kind of routine, regular natural drought cycle, an opportunity to make better policy in 2022 and going forward?
1: Yeah, it usually is. I mean, I, I don't think we would have gotten sigma or any of the efficiency legislation passed if we hadn't had that drought in the middle of the last decade. The question is, what are you ready for and what are you willing to push and what China are you, frankly, willing to break? And it's hard for politicians to get anybody mad. They want to be loved. And uh, But leadership means making those stands. And um, almost every politician has their good days and their bad days and the things they're leaders on and the things they're reluctant to lead on for a variety of reasons. And so um, uh, it, we'll, ha- we'll have to see. We'll have to see what happens in this decade. But it is an opportunity.
0: What's the first thing you would fix or change?
1: I would go longer yeah. on quantifying the water rights such as they are and and Find a way to be able to actually make it real. Being able to say, like right now, a lot of it is, you know, especially with the seniors, the pre-1914s, before the modern water rights system. There are folks who that you know, literally, their their forebears tacked a note to a tree and recorded it, and they think that's it. And it's like, well, you kind of have to true it up. I mean, they keep saying we can't even enforce it. We keep winning that we can, but. What you really need for a working system is for folks to know what their order of priority is as between someone else, so that when you see the hydrology, you can more quickly say when they're out of water, because it's not just down the line. Sometimes the most senior person is at the bottom. You know, like on the colorado river imperial irrigation district is the most senior with the biggest water right to the whole river that goes through seven states and so you need to be able to do that on every water course i mean colorado quantified all their water rights down to what runs off people's roofs but it took them 30 years uh idaho spent 27 doing that we we've quantified and adjudicated a handful where it's clear where they are right now the administration and the the legislature gave the board i don't know 20 or 30 million to finally digitize the water rights so it's not on pieces of paper
0: unbelievable you know
1: in a vault in a room you know it's so, so that so that you can then have the transparency where everybody can see each others and they can argue about it but at least you're you're starting with some transparency. And instead, you know, the Water Board has to start over again with kind of not just pieces of paper, but it, it took us till the last route to get some tools to even order measurement devices. And that's only half complied with because the Water Board's never had the resources to actually enforce and get this job done. Uh, and that's better, if people want to fight it because they prefer the uncertainty where they can assert things and they're afraid of government taking something from them or losing something that their grandparents said they had that maybe they never really did. But if you did it, we'd actually have much more of a working system or you would at least have a foundation for a more rational conversation. But I also think there have to be tools to let the water board actually act more quickly than the current process allows.
0: Now there are a couple of, uh, options that I know a lot of our listeners have read about. I know I've read about them. you've obviously you know, talked a lot about them in your work in all likelihood uh, and they are reservoir uh, and capacity, you know building storage basically in the, terms, in the ways of reservoirs. Um, and also, there's been this conversation starting around desalination. Um, now, I know that there is at least one operational desalination plant in California, if not but more. There are a few. It's, it's,
1: it's... There's one really big one. There are a few small ones. Yeah.
0: Okay, got it. So whether it's desalination or reservoirs or something else, like uh, what types of kind of 21st century, like newer um, interventions or other resources should the state look at really seriously to kind of help mitigate this water shortage that we keep encountering?
1: Well, the the first thing is to go long on efficiency and conservation, which is the cheapest, fastest, smartest way to go. I mean, we don't, we spend over 50% of our urban water on outdoor ornamental landscaping. And we need trees and we need ornamental landscaping, but we don't need green carpets in the middle of July. You know yeah, just okay that nobody uses so if you if you just limited turf to more functional turf or even limited the color of it <laughs> in certain times of year you would save a boatload of water you wouldn't need to do expensive desal and you could postpone even expensive water recycling in the urban context and if you buttoned up leaks you would do the same thing so there's plenty you could do there i think um so you have to so There's sort of a hierarchy of What's the most cost effective way to do to buy yourself time so that you get technological breakthroughs, longer to pay for things, keep your rates kind of lower. So there's a lot of that. We also do need more storage above ground and below and big and small, just not necessarily on stream. That has, you know, we've already dammed all the, we've over dammed all of the the best places, which is a big part of why our fish are in so much trouble. because. Those dams are not meeting the requirements of keeping fish in good condition below the dams. Um, so we ought to be enforcing more on that. But that's another story. But it's more the offstream, like Diamond Valley Reservoir in Southern California that Metropolitan built, you know, $2 million to build that and build some non-sexy pipelines so that they could toggle between their Colorado and Delta sources to have more flexibility in the system, but they have an 800,000 acre foot reservoir that's been a lifeline during these last two droughts. We need a lot of those in a distributed way. We need inner ties between places so people can do some trades, but also so you can get water into the ground, You know, so you need sort of holding reservoirs. They can be little, and then you can meter it back into the ground, but underground is the, definitely the, the best place to, to go. When it comes to decel, it's interesting because you know there's theory and practice it, at, at the moment and we did regs to deal with the externalities of of this but the system can be gamed a little too much where they have real impact on the marine environment as they suck in the the water it's not just pulling in fish or a seal it's the larva it's the fish food it's it's, it's all the stuff we've spent decades trying to protect with marine protected areas and this once through cooling policy that the board did before I got there, where every power plant up and down the coast is getting their straws out of the ocean and going to air cooling and other things. So desal definitely is stepping into a place where it can have really big impacts on the marine environment in the intakes and the discharge, because you put a blanket of salt out, It's there's salt and there's salt. It's very site-specific. And so... Um, you know The best way is to do subsurface, which is what our regs um, prefer, because then you're filtering it just through the sand. It, you just can't get quite as much quite as uh, fast. But it's very expensive and very energy intensive. And so it's the last place you should go. And if you have a groundwater basin, people aren't going there as much because it's cheaper, faster, and smarter to recycle water at much less energy cost and get it into the ground. I mean, the irony of your discharging wastewater even and treat it to a high level into the ocean, and then pulling fresh ocean water in. When you could just take that water and polish it a little bit more, and you're getting to water you can then recharge into the groundwater basin and eventually take up to a reservoir. So that those things are obviously the first things to do. That and stormwater capture, and you know you'd have to you'd have to blanket the coast with these big industrial facilities to try and um, Make up for it. And you don't need to between conservation and recycling and stormwater. But some places don't have a groundwater basin to speak of, like San Diego. So they're spending an awful lot of money for a little slice of their water use just so they can sleep at night a little better.
0: Can you just talk to our listeners directly right now? Um, you know, summer 2022 is coming up, uh, it's going to be hot. Uh, We're going to have a drought in all likelihood. It's going to be, you know, uh, we had a little bit of rain this weekend, so it may not be extreme, maybe severe if we're lucky, right? Um, What are some of the adjustments that you foresee average Californians needing to make as they consume water in the months ahead, whether it's their lawns or ornamental lawns and gardens, like you were just talking about, whether it's recreation, you know, what adjustments? do you see them needing to make in the months ahead and how would you advise them on doing that?
1: Well, I think I think there's a lot of easy things to do and I think Californians have done a good job on this in the past. It's still, it's not a total mystery to me, it's still a little mystery to me that people haven't urged the call to conserve more this time around. I think uh, in part because there's just so many other catastrophic things happening that uh, between the pandemic and wars and climate change, I mean, maybe it's just more than people can bear, but there's just a ton. I mean, not overwatering the lawn is the easy, it's hard to kill a lawn, but just not worrying about it being as green. Uh, it's it's insane to send, spend, you know, expensively treated drinking water on making your yard the color of a Scottish golf link in the middle of the summer or in the middle of a drought. I mean, it, it just, it's a total waste of water and money. And I think that's so that should be the first thing. If you can afford to transfer out of a lawn and turn into a, a drought tolerant landscape other than gravel, which is not good because it gets hot, everything gets hotter, you should. But not everybody can afford it. So when there are rebates, people should grab them. Rebates for their washing machines, rebates for their dishwashers, those sorts of things, checking leaks. You know, if you can get one of those little smart meter ish things, that's great. Again, you need to be able to afford it. But you can just, you know, once a year, we just get food coloring and put it in the toilet to see if it ends up in a few hours in the tank, in the in the bowl. Then you've got a leak and you spend five bucks at Home Depot and you put in a new flapper and it's fixed. That's a lot of water. That's like maybe the hardest thing to do. But you could, you know, you even I can do that. And so those things are really important. I also think it's important for people to express their political will at their water agencies to say that they want them to invest the money that it takes to invest in the future whether it's water recycling or rebates or whatever and to ask for demand actually the information about what their money goes for i, I think water agencies need to communicate more honestly with their consumers but consumers have to show up and say they want to be educated about it and and some of them have to w- run for water agency board of directors so that you end up with people in who actually care about the future as opposed to keeping their seats
0: yeah sure i'm in in your experience discussing california with folks outside the state what do you find that they most misunderstand
1: about california that's a really good question i think everybody knows some little slice of california and they think they know california when in fact we're like five or six different states you know, we have varying terrain, we have the varying hydrology, we have varying cultures, we've got, you know, we are the most complex, I think, of any of the states, geologically, geographically, culturally, etc. It makes it an exciting and, I think, uh, dynamic place, but also kind of a... um a a perplexing place to some other people. So I think people don't understand that. I think a lot of times people assume that we're better than we are at all the environmental issues at times because we're good about touting how good we are at some things. I think sometimes people don't know that. I mean, certainly people in the Western states know how far we are behind on our water rights system. Um, But elsewhere, I'm not sure people really know. I also think people don't realize how much of their food is grown here. You know, we're one of only five Mediterranean climates that can grow the level of healthy fruits and vegetables that we grow. So I don't think the rest of the country actually realizes how dependent they are on us. Um, I'm not saying that means every every acre of farmland should stay in what it's in, or that it should shouldn't. You know, you should, what, how many nuts you need or not. I'm, I'm not getting wading into that, but I think people don't appreciate the bounty that's California, and so they don't appreciate the pride of ag. And so they go about dialogues with agriculture in the wrong way. You know, people don't Mm. go to work to grow things so they can dump excess water and fertilizer on it to poison people or that that's not the intention. It's just it's sort of the side effect of a socially productive thing. So I think people don't know that. But I also think people don't realize how it's an amazing place where new people can come in and make a difference far more easily than they can in other places. And so it's a place where you don't need to be as cynical as you do in other parts of the country. I mean, that was a piece of why I liked coming back. I liked the edge in other parts of the country. I liked the age of certain things. I, I liked the traditions. I, I like that people wore dark clothing, which I like to wear. I mean, I just like and that people read a lot of newspapers. But um, but I, I like the the freedom and the flexibility that California offers people to follow their dreams, whatever they are. Um, and you just need to have the tolerance. That everybody's following a different dream and then this issue of dealing with our fragmentation is sort of the flip side that we need to figure out we don't have to become a monolith but we need to meet somewhere in the middle
0: we end every episode with the same question for all guests get ready who is your favorite californian past or present and why
1: You know, I hate to say it. I'd like to come up with a famous person, but I think it's got to be Judge Pregerson, who I started with early on in this conversation, because that man was the embodiment of pure goodness and hope without being a Hallmark card. I mean, he'd get mad. He was tough as nails and ex-Marine, but he was like um, he was. Focused on helping everyone and listening to everyone, and loved California. And uh, I just—I've never met someone who's quite that amazing before or since who's done so much good in the world. And I think his his final words to his wife were his sadness that he couldn't help people anymore. I mean, really, quite mm-hmm. an unusual person. He 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 jawboned generals and mayors and senators and probably presidents to do things for homeless vets that nobody before or since has done even a fraction of. I'm just an amazing man.
0: Felicia Marcus, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. There you have it. Felicia Marcus, everyone. That was really enlightening. Uh, in the show notes, you'll find links to any sort of reports, coverage, background information that Felicia mentioned in the episode or that I referenced uh for you know further enlightenment if you'd like to read those or check in on those. So you know that context is always kind of helpful and you'll find it in the show notes both in your podcast feed and or Substack wherever you happen to get what is California. Thank you so much for your listenership. I really appreciate it. It's so good to be with you as always. We just have a few episodes left this season. I look forward to sharing with you uh what we got coming up. Very excited for that. And uh yeah thanks again. What is California is produced, hosted, and edited by me, Stu Van Aersdale. Our theme music is produced by Sound Supreme. You can find us on Twitter at WhatCalifornia and subscribe on Substack at whatiscalifornia.substack.com. That'll get you a free podcast in your inbox every Thursday and a roundup of weekend links. Cool California stories in your inbox every Friday. That is free to subscribe at whatiscalifornia.substack.com. You can always reach out via email as well. I'd love to hear from you at hello at whatiscalifornia.com if you've got questions, comments, love notes, hate mail, concerns, thoughts, recommended guests, and other things I haven't even thought of yet. Remember, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you liked What Is California, I would really, really, really appreciate it if you rated and reviewed the show on Apple Podcasts. It does help new listeners find us. That is a wrap from What is California HQ in beautiful Sacramento, California. It's been a pleasure being with you. I look forward to seeing you again soon. Until then, remember, as always, keep your eye on the bear.